What is up, my dudes? What is up, my dudettes? It's the Casey's Corner Podcast broadcasting live today on this Wednesday. We have got a jam-packed show coming your way. We're going to lead off with a sports update coming. Uh, it's not going to be a long sports update, but we're going to take some questions and some answers, so that'll kind of string it out. Uh, we're going to lead off with that. Then we'll go to the phone lines. We have two call-in guests today, two uh, very good interviews. I was very blessed and fortunate to talk to both of these people. We've got Derek Bro from Blacklist Martial Arts and Fitness in Homa. Um, he did a wonderful job explaining the growth of martial arts, some of the things he offers, you know, self-confidence, anti-bullying, and uh, we talked a little bit of UFC in there as well. So Derek Bro coming on in the next segment. Then after that, we're going to have former professional baseball player, former Nichols baseball player, Homa guy, now works for PCM, Blake Bejeron. We had a good interview with Blake, talked about his career, some of the things you've got to do if you aspire to be an athlete. A uh, very uh, wide-ranging interview, so you're going to want to check that out. And then at the bottom of the show, we're going to kind of change things up a little bit. Um, we're entering phase two of the reopening plan. We'll talk about phase two. We'll talk about what that means. And then we'll kind of transition. Like we've been doing um, strictly COVID updates, right? It's been sports, calling guests, COVID updates. We're going to kind of transition. It'll be now sports updates, calling guests. And then instead of just strictly COVID, we're going to talk about maybe some other general news um, because obviously we've got a tropical storm in the Gulf of Mexico and we've got some other things that are happening in the world. So we're going to kind of evolve. Those updates are not strictly going to just be, you know, coronavirus now, though we're going to talk about phase two. We're going to take some questions and, you know, we're going to, you know, do the things that need to be done, but we're not going to sell ourselves short to only uh, uh, coronavirus and only COVID-19. So um, go find us on iTunes, Casey's Corner Podcast on iTunes. Go find us on Facebook. The show itself now has a Facebook uh, thanks to Lease, our uh, sales rep, at, or not sales rep, our um, our sales manager at Lafouche Gazette for uh, setting that up, getting that rolling, and uh, we've got a lot of things that'll be coming your way. But we're going to lead off with a sports update. Then we'll take your questions from the world of sports, and uh, the sports update is going to revolve around one topic, which is the NBA has announced formally their plan to reopen their season. We've talked about this uh, on and off here in the last couple of shows. But we finally have like the formal plan of what it's going to actually look like. Um, we got you know the, the guidance. We've got the right um, you know the, the P's and Q's are, are, are laid out. The, the I's are dotted. The T's are crossed. We know exactly what this is going to look like, and it's going to be approved according to multiple reports on ESPN and other media. So every team that is within four games of the eight seed in their respective conferences is going to be allowed back that'll be 22 teams in total that'll be 13 western conference teams nine eastern conference teams every team all 22 will play eight regular season games and then from there what we're going to do is we're going to have a play-in tournament for the eight seed uh one game uh two teams the eight seed and the nine seed and there's some stipulations so you have to be within four games of the eight seed in the standings to make it to the play-in round. So that means that the Pelicans are going to have to basically draw even with the Grizzlies because the Pelicans are three and a half games back of the Grizzlies right now. So they're going to have to draw even with the Grizzlies to make it into that play-in stage. But they're also going to have to fend off Portland and you know the Spurs and some of the other teams are going to be chasing them as well. So we'll keep an eye on that whenever it reopens. Um, a couple of things about this plan. All the games will be in Orlando. Uh, the conferences will remain in place, uh, east-west. You know, and then after the eight games, we're going to take the 
uh, the seeding and it'll all fall where it goes. And now we're not going to be seeding based strictly on these eight games. We're going to roll over the regular season standings and you're going to add on to your current regular season record. So, for example, right now in the West, um, the Lakers are 49 and 14. They've got a five and a half game lead. Basically, the regular season is pointless for them. They're going to clinch the one seed unless they just lose all their games. But there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of jockeying for position. For example, in the West, Denver's the three seed, 43 and 22, but they only have a four game lead on the seven seed, which are the Mavericks, who are 40 and 27. So there's going to be some flipping and some flopping. And you know, the team I, I pay attention to is the Rockets. They're the sixth seed right now, 40 and 24. But they're just two games out from being the three seed and, and just one game away from being the four seed. So those eight games are going to be very important as teams flip and flop and you know try to get their playoff positioning. But the most important thing for the perspective of the Pelicans is they're currently in a three-way tie with the Trailblazers, with the Kings for the nine seed, and they're only a half a game ahead of the Spurs who are you know lagging way behind. So they're going to have to stay within four games of Memphis and then also be the best team out of that big pool in their eight-game schedule. It's going to be tougher than to make that playing game, but it's going to be exciting to watch it all play out. Out east, there's going to only be nine teams invited. That's because the race for the eighth seed in the east was non-competitive. It'll be the Magic and the Wizards. The Wizards are going to have to do some legwork to get to that play-in stage. They are currently five and a half games back of Orlando. So they're going to have to beat Orlando by two whole games out of the eight-game schedule. It's not going to be easy to do. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that. One of the big storylines, Brooklyn Nets are... Why not? Well, heck, I guess we're talking about that. The Brooklyn Nets may be in the play-in game. That's something I, I guess I didn't mention as well. In the West, it looks pretty easy. The Grizzlies are locked into the either, the, either the 8 or the 9 seed because there's seven teams with great records, but then the Grizzlies trail way, way behind. But out in the East, the Magic are just you know one game behind the Nets, who are the seven seed. So the Magic could, in theory, jump to that seven spot, dropping the Nets into that play-in game. So it's going to be interesting. There's going to be some things to pay attention to. Um, as I've said on this show, I wasn't a huge fan of the plan, and I'm still not. I, I would have preferred the World Cup plan. I think the conferences and you know holding the conferences true to form, I think that's stupid. Um, you have every team in the same city. Um, there's no reason you can't seed 1 through 16. But as one of my good buddies on social media said today, it's basketball. We're going to be able to watch basketball. Um, we're going to be able to watch NBA again. So you can't complain too much. Um, and I, I guess I got to fall in line with that as well. You can't complain too much as long as there's going to be live sports on the television. This plan is going to go into place on July the 31st. So the teams are going to get back onto the court on July the 31st. In between now and then, they're going to be getting guys back into camp, working out, you know, training and practicing and doing everything to get everybody back into shape. And uh, then we'll be going off to Disney World. And I'm sure there's going to be some protocols for uh you know testing for covid and, and you know there's going to be probably a plan in place for if somebody tests positive and all those details are going to be coming out in the coming days but it looks like on july the 31st we're going to have some basketball again and it's all going to be taking place at disney world now one thing before we get to you guys questions is that the nba is actually looking for ways to um how, how could i say this they're looking for ways to replicate that home court advantage that's going to be lost by playing the postseason in Orlando. Um, obviously, you know, before COVID-19, we were looking at a situation where the Lakers and the Bucks were going to be the one seeds and, you know, the postseason would have revolved around their home arenas. And now with everybody in Orlando and, you know, limited fan access, if any fan access, home field advantage is going to virtually be lost. So there are some kind of 
weird plans that are in place, and I don't know if any of these are going to pass, um, that would give teams that are the higher-seeded teams a little bit of an in-game advantage. One proposal, higher-seeded team would be awarded the basketball to begin the second, third, and fourth quarters after the original jump ball. Another plan says the higher-seeded team would be allowed to designate one player to be whistled for seven fouls instead of six before fouling out of a game. Another says the higher-seeded team should receive an extra coach's challenge. Then another, the higher-seeded team would be able to transport their actual home um, home court, their actual hardwood floor to Orlando so that they could feel like they're playing at home. And then finally, an off-court feature which would allow playoff teams seeded 1 through 16 to receive their first to receive their first choice into which hotel they want to stay at at the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex. Um, let's go through these one by one because some of these are kind of interesting. First, uh, the higher-seeded team would be awarded possession of the basketball first to begin the second, third, and fourth quarters after the jump ball. That one's okay, I guess, um, because usually whoever wins the jump ball receives the ball to start the game and then also in the fourth quarter. So you'd be getting basically an extra possession. Um I'm not overly opposed to that. You know, I, I'd give it, you know, a B. Uh, if they passed it, I wouldn't, you know, bat an eye. I wouldn't think anything crazy. Um, second, the higher-seeded team would be allowed to designate one player to be whistled for seven fouls as opposed to six. I think it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Um, I don't want to see that, obviously. Um, star players in the NBA don't foul out of games anyway. Um, I always joked about this whenever the Rockets were playing the Warriors in a series. The worst thing that you could ever have when you're facing the Warriors is Draymond Green getting in foul trouble. Why? Because the league's not going to foul him out of a game. So once he gets his second foul in the first quarter or his fifth foul in the fourth quarter, he could then do whatever he wants. Um, same thing as when he gets his first technical foul. He gets his first technical foul five minutes into the game, then you know he becomes uh, like you know Superman. He could do whatever he wants, say whatever he wants. He's not going to get ejected. He's not going to get fouled out. So I don't think that fouling out is a big issue in the NBA, and I wouldn't want to see that rule be put in place. Third, the higher-seeded team receives an extra coach's challenge. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, I'm not for more reviews in basketball. I'm for less reviews in basketball, but yeah, that'd be okay, I guess. Um, fourth, I think is the coolest one. Allow teams to bring their actual hardwood court to the arenas in Orlando to preserve the field playing at home. Why not? I um, mean, if the Lakers are the one seed and they're playing the Pelicans who are the eight seed, why not have a purple and gold court? You know, whatever. They earned it for being the number one seed. The fifth one, I think, is the coolest one. Let teams be seeded one through 16, and then the number one seed gets to pick the hotel they want to stay in first and then all the way down the line. Um, I think we could have fun with that. I don't think it gives anybody a competitive advantage. I think that'd be interesting. And I do think something should be done. I mean, look, I know that this benefits the Lakers and I'm you know not a big Laker guy uh, but the fact is they're the one seed they, they probably deserve to get some sort of advantage you know after losing their home court advantage they probably deserve to have something go their way um, so I mean I would be okay with you know maybe some form or you know of, of this but you know when you're talking about adding fouls to a guy I mean it just becomes so subjective and it becomes not basketball anymore so I wouldn't be okay with drastic change but I'd be okay with something to reward teams for getting home court advantage um, now, before we get to your questions, there's going to be something I want to touch on that, um, man, this is not an issue that I've touched on much because it's so controversial and it's so polarizing and, um, you know, it's something that I try to stay out of political stuff as best I can. Um, but with where we are in the United States right now, it's becoming harder and harder to avoid. And it's something that, uh, now is touching Louisiana athletics. So I feel like I have to touch on it. Drew Brees said today, 
when speaking to Yahoo Finance, which I don't know why the heck he was doing an interview at Yahoo Finance to begin with, but he was asked about players kneeling again for the National Anthem when the NFL season starts. And Drew Brees said, and I quote, I will never agree with anybody disrespecting the flag of the United States of America or our country. Um, uh, man, that's, uh, that's a bold statement to make at this time in our country where, you know, we're fighting against, you know, police injustices against people of color and all the different things that have caused riots and, and controversy. And I think that, um, let me let me say this, and this is my my view, and I think that this is maybe something that Drew was trying to say, and it just didn't come out of his mouth the right way. Um, I, I think it's okay if you stand for the national anthem. Uh, and Drew goes on and talks about how his grandfather served in World War One and Two and whatever it may be. Uh, I think it's okay if you stand and put your hand over your heart and you respect our flag. But I think that if someone chooses to kneel in a peaceful protest, I don't think that it means that they're disrespecting the flag. I think it just means that they're trying to stand for something that's greater. Um, and there was this great outrage, outrage when Colin Kaepernick did it, and you know it sparked all this outroar, and you know people going crazy. And um, I don't think that that's the big issue. I don't think that necessarily these people are disrespecting the flag of the United States. Why is kneeling down a sign of disrespect? Anyway, we kneel down to pray. Um, we kneel down, you know, when we're asking God to forgive us or asking God to grant us wishes. And I never thought it was a great, you know, huge sign of disrespect. Um, you know, and I think that everyone has the right to peacefully assemble and peacefully recognize themselves in their own way. Just like I think that people who disagree with it have the right to, you know, peacefully disagree and say, hey, we could agree to disagree on that. Um, you know, some of the things we've seen around the world, you know, the, the rioting and different things like that, looting, and that's not okay. But I think that most people would agree that that's not okay. Um, so I think that I, I think that Drew has kind of chosen a bad choice of words here. Um, and he may want to take that back with his man. Whew, Josh Hart from the Pelicans has come out against Drew Brees. Michael Thomas has said that, you know, he's come out and he's, you know, not happy with the comments. And I think that we may see a retraction here in the coming days. Um, curious to see how it goes, but for everybody who's hurting right now, we're praying for you. Everybody who's worried, we're praying for you. And, or, you know, everybody who's choosing to express themselves, we just ask that you do it peacefully. Everybody who's, you know, going out and, and doing different things to express themselves, be safe in doing so, be thoughtful in doing so. And I think by and large, 99%, not, maybe not 99%, but you do see some crazy stuff on the news, but 95, 96, 97% of people are doing it the right way. It's just unfortunately that 1% of the bad apples that get the most attention. And um, crazy time in the world, but we're praying for peace and we're praying for equality for all. There's no doubt about that. So let's get to your questions now and then we'll go to our call in line. First question today um, is a WWE question. We actually got two WWE questions today. You guys are ca catching on to the wrestling stuff, which I like. First question, who do you think had the bet the better in-ring career, Randy Orton or Batista? Um, I don't think there's any question to me. I think it's Randy Orton. Uh, Randy Orton has lasted longer, won more titles, is more accomplished, uh, better in-ring worker. You know, I've been critical of Randy Orton in building up his match against Edge, um, but that's just because I don't think it's going to be the best match of all time. That doesn't, and I said it on the last show, I think Randy Orton's a Hall of Famer. I think he's a good performer. Um, he's not the best. He's not the best of this generation. He's a good performer. Um, and I, I just don't, I never got the Batista thing. Batista to me always felt like one of those Vince McMahon, 
your six foot five, 300 pounds and on steroids kind of gimmicks. Um, thought he was always kind of stiff, very one dimensional in the ring. And he was pushed more because of what the company saw when he was lifting weights than what they saw when he was in the ring. So for, to me, it's pretty easy. I, I go Randy Orton and I don't, I don't bat an eye. Uh, I think he's a solid B plus. Uh, I think Batista is a solid C plus, And I think that there's a very clear distinction and level between the two. I think Randy Orton's a far better compo- uh, competitor, a far better co- performer, and has had a far greater career. Question two says, Casey, I know you're a big Dallas Cowboys fan. Do you think Dak Prescott is worth all that money? I don't. Um, that's how you know I ain't a homer. Because uh, I'm, I'm not one of those guys who says Dak Prescott's a top five quarterback. And, you know, the fact that he just turned down a deal that would have made him the richest quarterback in NFL history is, I think, something that has very much got me thinking, hey, uh, let's see what we could get for this guy in the trade market. And I know that's unrealistic. You're not going to trade Dak Prescott away. But, you know, you got Andy Dalton, the guy who's made the playoffs before. You could probably get a crap ton of first-round picks if you traded him. You could probably get, you know, maybe some other talent, you know, that could fill out the rest of your roster if you traded him. It's just an idea. Because I know this, if he's turning down the richest contract in NFL history, and then you give into those demands and give them even more than that, and the NFL salary cap shrinks after the pandemic for a couple of years because of lost revenue, you're just looking at an albatross, man. Uh, you're looking at a deal that is going to dominate your cap. You're looking at losing very good players, all for what? A guy who gets stats because you're losing, and then he picks up his stats in the third and fourth quarter. That's what Dak Prescott is. Uh, he's a guy that is is good when they're running the ball and playing from ahead, but when they're they're behind and struggling and you need something out of him late in games, he's not been able to deliver. Um, all the stats about being almost a 5,000-yard passer and the number one offense in the league, and that was all hogwash, man. I watched every one of those games. Uh, how many games did they have where they scored just 10, 15 points? Too many. How many games did they have where they scored 28 to 35 points, but – all the offense, you know, and the yards came late when they were. Thanksgiving was a great example. Cowboys got killed by the Bills on Thanksgiving. Um, but yet they had, you know, a ton of yards in that game because they were getting crushed the entire second half. So the Bills were in prevent, letting them get 50, 60 yards a drive, letting them get 8, 10 yards a play, just as long as they killed the clock. Uh, you know, the, the Green Bay game was another example of that. Um, they just get cheap yards, and the stats are superficial. They don't mean anything to me. You were playing in one of the weakest divisions in the NFL last year, and you couldn't win it. Um, I think that's all it needs to be said. Number three, besides Alabama, what game worries you most for LSU in 2020? Um, Texas, quite a bit, to be honest with you. Texas gave LSU everything it could handle last year. Uh, now, granted, that was on the road, but also, granted, this year it'll be at home, but there won't be any fans in the stands. Um, so it's not going to be a great home field advantage. They get Sam uh, Ellinger back. He's He gave LSU fits last year. I think he could put together a strong performance on the road and give LSU hell. Um, second, uh, for me, would be Florida. Uh, Florida's got a lot back. I think they're going to be very good. Uh, this is one of those teams that everyone's saying can make that big leap like LSU did and maybe get into college football playoff contention. Florida's going to be a tough game. Uh, so those would be the two. Texas A&M's up there as well, but I believe it when I see it with them. I know that they've got a lot back, but I think Jimbo Fish is overrated. And, you know, we could talk about how they have – this starter back and that starter back, I think their quarterback's trash. And if your quarterback is trash, um, you're not going to win big. And I don't think Kelly Mond's any good. So I think Texas a is going to be limited a little bit because, you know, he can't play. Um, number four, do you think Major League Baseball could work in New Orleans someday? 
Um, no, I don't. Um, I think you got to look at a couple of things. And I hear this argument all the time. Oh, man, you know, LSU's got number one attendance in college baseball, you know, so maybe we would support pro baseball. A couple of things. It's easy to go and support a team with a 10,000-seat attendance on the weekends only, which is when LSU draws those numbers. And it's another thing to realize that, hey, 10,000 people a night at the MLB is bankruptcy. Um, you've got to be drawing 30, 40,000, not 30, 40, but you know, 25, 30,000 people a night to be, you know, mid-market team. Um, and another thing is with the LSU argument, like, have you been to a midweek LSU game ever? Like, there ain't no 10,000 people there in the midweek. And the numbers that you're seeing in terms of tickets and attendance, and those are tickets sold. Um, so, yeah, they may sell out every night, but if uh, only 40% of the people who bought tickets and season tickets and everything actually go, and you have these attendances in midweek that are 3,500, 4,000, uh, that ain't going to support MLB. Uh, you know, so I think that a couple of things are in play. One, if you're playing the whole LSU card, you got to look d- deeper into the numbers. If you draw 11,000 at Alex Box, that would be like a, a Devil Rays crowd, or not Devil Rays anymore. That'd be like a Tampa Bay Rays crowd. That'd be like a Miami Marlins crowd. Those numbers are not good enough in the MLB. And then the second thing is, man, it's hot and it's humid. It's 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 not great weather in Louisiana to be outside in the in the you know the mugginess of June, July, and August uh, for a couple of reasons. A, it's uncomfortable even when the weather's good, and B, it rains a ton. Like you would be dealing with a lot of rain delays and. I just don't think the market's there. I wish it would be. I would support the team, but I don't think that very many people would be with me. I've been to Baby Kate games. I've been to Zephyr games. The attendance was deplorable. Um, I don't think that the market is there. Number five, give me a sleeper NFL team who you think can make a run in 2020. Um, Let me think about this one for a minute. Let me go through the divisions and go think about this one for a minute. Um... I think in the AFC, Buffalo can make a run. Now that New England has dropped down a peg, I think Buffalo is going to be really good. I think, I mean, I, I could say the Steelers, but I don't think that they're ever going to be considered a sleeper. Last year they were beat up because they had a lot of injuries. So I would go Steelers and Buffalo in the AFC. In the NFC, let's see. Um... um the NFC, I think we've got a pretty good idea of who everyone is. I Seattle was made the playoffs last year. They would be a team that I would be thinking of. Arizona, I think, can maybe make a little leap forward, but their division's so doggone good. I think Dallas will make the playoffs, but I can't say them. You guys would laugh and throw eggs at me all the way from your computers to mine. Um, so yeah, I'll go. I'll say Buffalo would be my number one sleeper. I think that they were kind of slept on. They made the playoffs, and nobody really thought much of them. Uh, but I think they can make a big leap forward and maybe be one of those teams chasing, you know, to maybe get a division by or whatever it may be. I think Josh Allen's going to make a step. I think their roster's pretty good. So give me Buffalo. Number six, could the Pelicans beat the number one seed in the first round of NBA playoffs? No. Um, good question. <laughs> no. Um, the Pelicans' biggest concern right now is they've got to make sure that they're the number nine seed so that they could actually get into the tournament. Um, they are right now in a three-way tie for the number nine seed. And there's the San Antonio Spurs, a half game behind them that could jump them as well. So they're going to have to stay in their current position to be in the top nine seed or in the, in the top nine seeds in the West. And they're going to have to, you know, not be fended off by, 
uh, Portland. I'd be fended off by the Kings, and I'd be fended off by the Spurs. And it's going to be tough. It's going to be a grind. They're going to have to be the best of all those teams to try to get in. Oh, yeah, and then they're going to have to beat Memphis in a one-game playoff. And then, oh, yeah, they're going to have to play the Lakers in a best of seven, which would only last at the most five games. Um, so, yeah, it'll be exciting to see Zion and the Pelicans and everything like that. Uh, but don't have high hopes for them, you know, making this miraculous run to chase the NBA championships. That's probably not going to happen. Number seven, last question, and then we'll take a break. Um, do you think any two wrestlers in the WWE today could could have the greatest match of all time? That's a great question. That's a really good question. Uh, as you know, it's been critical of Randy Orton and, and Edge's, you know, future attempt at it. Um I would say that if AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan got in the ring, that they would have a chance to maybe have the best match of all time. Um, Seth Rollins could potentially mix with one of those two guys and potentially have the best match of all time. Um, on the other side of things, over on AEW, uh, you, well, you act specifically WWE today, but on the AEW side, if you put, you know, AJ Styles and, and Cody Rhodes together, could they maybe do it? Maybe, um, you know, whatever it may be. Chris Jericho still putting together somehow unbelievably epic performances. So I think that there are people uh, there who could do it um, in the wrestling world today. But they've got it. Okay, here's the thing. There's one of the biggest problems in wrestling today is the oversaturation. Because you got Raw and you got SmackDown, you've got a roster of, 50, 60 guys and gals, and that's a roster that's smaller now than it was because they cut a bunch of people before it was a roster of 70 or 80 guys and gals. you got so many mouths to feed, and you know pay-per-views are condensed with so many matches, too many matches, because they don't want to leave people off of shows and you know affect their you know paydays and everything of that sort. So while I do think that there are people who could do that and could pull it off, I don't know that the booking conditions would ever be right to give them the adequate 35, 40 minutes of time to give them the adequate space and you know the, the adequate push that's necessary. So my, my best guess would be AJ Styles versus Daniel Bryan, but I don't know that they're going to ever be put in that position to be given enough time, to be given the big enough stage to actually pull it off. So let's go ahead and catch a quick commercial break. I thank you guys so much for the questions. Just clearkcy at gmail.com. Subscribe, guys. Go to iTunes. Type Casey's Corner. Subscribe. That's the best advice I could give you. I know everybody asks me all the time, how can I find your podcast? Subscribe. We'll send them straight to your phone. You don't have to do any more work. Derek Bro with Blacklist Martial Arts and Fitness in Homa. Then Blake Bejeron, former professional baseball player, former Nichols baseball player. Those are your next two segments. Then a short COVID slash hurricane slash tropical storm update is the Casey's Corner podcast on LaFouchGazette.com. We'll be right back after this. Hi, I'm James Cantrell. I'm running for state representative of District 54. I'm not a politician. I'm a businessman and a problem solver. I'm running for state representative because I want to provide solutions to the many problems the great state of Louisiana is facing today. Speaking from experience, this bayou and its people mean so much to me. I was born and raised here. 
It is heartbreaking to see our businesses closed from the tanking of our national, state, and local economies to our shrimpers, teachers, oil and gas workers, and every industry in between. We need a representative working for a better future for everybody. I believe that together we can revive Louisiana. I humbly ask for your support for State Representative of District 54 on July 11th. Together, we can create a strong future for our Louisiana. This is a special election. Early voting starts June 20th and lasts for two weeks. Remember to vote James Cantrell, number 264. Courage, strength, loyalty. Paid for by the James Cantrell Campaign Fund. It's the Casey's Corner Podcast here on LaFoucheGazette.com. Joining us now on the phone lines, we have Derek Bro. Uh, Derek, how are you, man? I'm doing good, man. How about yourself? Doing fine, man. Now, look, you're the, the head of Blacklist Martial Arts and Fitness out in the Homa area. Uh, tell us a little yes, bit about sir. your story. Uh, what led you to you know being interested in martial arts and all that good stuff? And tell us a little bit about yourself, my friend. Um, well, uh, like you said, my name is Derek Bro. I've been training uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu now for about 20 years. Um, and we do have a academy here in Homa. We actually started out in race on the Lockport area and um, eventually eventually moved this way. But uh, I think what got me started was just kind of a little bit of a little bit bullying and stuff and just wanted to uh, do something positive with my time, you know, keep me out of trouble. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, did you, you know, kind of get involved at a young age, or was it something that you picked up as an adult? I guess you know, tell us a little bit about that. Actually, more I got involved when I was about twenty years old, um, or maybe just turned twenty-one, and um, I, I, I didn't play much sports at all growing up. Um, kind of where we grew up, I just wasn't, wasn't a lot of stuff available, you know, financially. So uh, it wasn't until I was an adult that I got involved. Uh, my cousin Chad Roby show. Who actually runs uh, the Mighty Oaks Warrior Program? And, um, got me involved. He uh, he moved from California out of the Marine Corps, and then the Marine Corps had did some uh, grappling and combatives. So when he came back down here to work on um, the police, the local police department, he kind of started showing me some jiu-jitsu and kind of getting me involved in that. And I was real impressed because uh, he's a lot smaller statue than I am, and he was able to easily take me down, take my back choked me out and uh i was just very impressed to how uh, technique could beat power and aggression you know and keep a calm head so something i wanted to learn at a, at a young age like 2021 20, it, it kept me out of a lot of trouble because i spent a lot of my time in the gym instead of you know getting in trouble so one of the things i wanted to ask you was Okay, so, you know, you become a black belt or whatever. Do you have to do anything special to, like, become a teacher? Or, you know, how how's that work? Um, with some martial arts, maybe, but jiu-jitsu, it's more time and experience. It's kind of, there's no shortcuts. It took me it took me 13 years to get my black belt, and that's 13 years of active training and competing in both jiu-jitsu tournaments and MMA. Um, and I know not every martial art is the same, different philosophies and all. I know um, a lot of my buddies have, Black belts and other martial arts, and they'll get them in three years or so. Uh, but jiu-jitsu is different. So by the time by the time you get your black belt in jiu-jitsu, um, in my 
my opinion, one of the, the things that makes a black belt is the ability to, to transfer knowledge. And after a good decade of doing something, you should be able to do that at least at some level. Very good. And look, in your time um, studying this and, you know, taking part in, in, you know, growing with the sport, the sport has grown and evolved as well. I mean, now there's UFC and there are so many people competing competitively and there's so many different leagues. And like, did you when you first got involved with this, did you ever realize that it would explode and grow as so much as it has? No, not at all. We uh, like a lot of people my age that are trained more sports right now. We probably all watched the first UFC and um I mean, it is what it was kind of frowned upon back then when it came out because it was kind of like uh, a lot of the politicians had all seen it as like almost human cockfighting. So they made it really hard to access it. They made it illegal to, for, for TVs to show it. So it was kind of not a popular thing now, like like what you see in UFC now. It was kind of it's kind of almost frowned upon. And uh, but we just. It was so impressive watching that first UFC. You know, they had Hoyce Gracie come out there who was fairly skinny and small compared to all these big athletes he was fighting. And just the the way he was able to just to lock on to them and, and submit them was just, just so impressive. To me, it was just like something you got to learn. You know, it was just to have, like, that kind of control over, like, when he was fighting Ken Shamrock, who's, who's a, a big muscular guy. The ability just to take him down, choke him, it was just so impressive to me. I just I had to learn it, you know. And I've I've been hooked ever since. Like I said, it's been over 20 years now, and uh, I still look forward to getting on the match and training every night. I haven't got bored with it yet. Very good. And, and you know, I know one of the things, uh, and you talked about how you know the UFC maybe had a stigma at one time, and you know the entire thing maybe had you know kind of an ugly stigma. But so much of what you guys do really is involved in, you know, personal de- personal development and, and developing people and, you know, trying to allow people to have the confidence to protect themselves. And, you know, it's not all fighting and blood and guts. You guys are trying to build character in people as well, aren't you? Yes, sir. I mean, uh, if you, you spend a day in our academy, we have kids as young as three that train here. And we have adults that uh, do it more of a hobby. We have a ton of military veterans that love that, that brotherhood. It's like a it's a shared struggle that you go through every night training that means a bond. And so we have if pe- people, I, th- I think men need that in today's society. They need a, a brotherhood, a positive brotherhood, you know? So we have, we have guys that are accountants and we have professional MMA fighters and everything in between. So it's, we can kind of, we have it all here and it's just, it's, I think I think this is some a positive thing that men need in their lives. You know, it kind of gets rid of egos and actually teaches you to be a, a more responsible man because it gets it busts that ego. I think ego is a huge problem in in men nowadays. Now you touched on something a minute ago um, that I want to ask you about. Now you you said bullying was a big part of your motivation uh, to get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that that's something that we hear about more and more today and. There are schools that are trying to combat it and different things. What are some of the things that you're trying to do to try to combat uh, bullying and make sure that everybody has the same and equal opportunities? So a big thing that I believe that we do here is is teach a uh, positive self-esteem. And uh, in my opinion, the best way to have good self-esteem about yourself is, is feeling good about yourself. Like people don't train martial arts to go beat up someone, but you you have a different confidence in yourself when you know you can defend yourself. 
you know, so you don't have to go walk around with your chest poked out when, when you feel good about yourself. And I think that goes the same thing as kids. When kids are around positive influences and the training and they feel confident, first of all, they're not going to be the bully, you know, hopefully in theory. And second of all, if they do get bullied, they can stand up for themselves. But we also teach them to stand up for their friends. So a couple of things we do is, uh, of course, our students that train here on a regular basis are getting exposed to that, you know, on a daily basis. But we try to do, like, uh, free self-defense seminars. We do free bullet prevention. We do a lot of uh, outreach program with women in self-defense. And we, we can kind of help them and give give them a little bit of uh, what we do here. I've tried to... Um, get into the school systems and that that's kind of has its own hurdles uh public schools are really difficult to get into private schools i've done a lot of bullet convention seminars at private schools um 4-h camps stuff like that is pretty easy for us to get into but uh the school board school board's been difficult around here um i've actually did presentations for the school board the local school board around here the same presentations that like my coach did in lafayette that was it allowed him to get into the schools and they had zero interest in it around here. So uh, I don't know if it's a liability thing. They don't, you know, I don't know. I know nowadays they teach zero tolerance. But looking back on me growing up and I was bullied a lot, but I was able, I at least was able to stand up for myself. Even if that means getting, getting a little butt kicking some time or getting some after school detention, but I at least had the option. And I think a lot of kids nowadays just feel helpless because they, they can't stand up to the bully because they're scared to get in trouble. You know, they, they don't want to tattletale. So they the kids nowadays are kind of putting a a rough predicament, I think, you know. And I kind of feel I kinda of feel bad for them. They don't have some of the outlets that we had as kids. No, that's a great point, man. Now I coach a little bit of basketball in my own time and I know that you working with the kids, I'm sure you got the same feeling. Talk about how good it feels when you have you know, the little youngster who comes in, you know, six, seven years old and maybe doesn't have great self esteem, maybe is getting picked on and then develops these skills, develops, you know, this training, and then the light bulb kind of goes off, and then you start to see them carrying mm-hmm. that swagger a little bit. Talk about how good that feels. That's that's a better feeling than winner, winning a professional MMA fight. Um, to see those those kids develop, and of course we get the natural athletes, and it's, it's a blessing to have those kids. They're fun to go watch compete, you know, but it I think the real gyms are when you get kind of like maybe that scrawny little boy that keeps his head down, who's real shy, and he develops a sense of, a sense of self-confidence in himself. And to me, it, to me, when you train the body, it exercises the mind, and when you train the mind, it exercises the body. So like when you, you got to have both, right? So when these kids in here training and all, you start seeing their grades go up. You know, it's kids that were struggling. I think a lot of it is because they were they were lacking self-esteem. It was not because they're incapable of learning or they're dumb. But when you lack self-esteem, you don't feel good about yourself. You're not going to maybe try as hard in school. So when, when we see that self-confidence rise, man, it's, it's a blessing. And it's a surprise to us, right? But we'll get like a, a text or a phone call from one of the parents and just let us know what's going on in their kid's life. And it's a true blessing. It's, a, it's, a, it's an honor to be part of our lives, of course, you know. Now, I know that one thing that, you know, the quote-unquote mainstream athletes, you know, the baseball players, basketball players, football players, some of those guys are now doing some of your training, and they say that it helps them in their respective sports because you can become more flexible, you know, stronger, and, you know, talk about how this can maybe help other athletes in other areas as well. Yeah, we definitely see it. Uh, 
we even see it on a high level, like a lot of NFL players in their off season. Of course, they don't want to risk training on their own season because they don't want to risk injury. But in their off season, you see them getting involved, trying to stay in shape with like Brazilian jitsu and judo and and karate and taekwondo because it it does it does keep you in shape, keeps you moving, keeps you flexible, and like um. You know, and you know, you can show up to the gym and just train. You don't have to know how to lift weights. You don't have to write a workout program. I guess it's kind of what we do for you. You know, you show up and the instructor walks you through the process. So it's kind of you just show up and train. And we, we see a lot of. Um, we're hoping to get wrestling. We've been working on getting wrestling because for some reason, Terrebonne and Fush Parish is like the only place in the whole world that doesn't have wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been working on getting wrestling in the in the school system and offering a, a wrestling team here at Blacklist. Um, one of our instructors is actually a senior at Terrebonne High School, and he was part of the first wrestling program ever in this area last uh, this past year and got to go wrestle. And we're, hopefully a lot of the coaches around here you know, especially the football coaches realizes that wrestling keeps your football players in shape in the off season and teaches them good base and foundation. You know, it could really wrestling is going to be a direct impact on our football programs around here. I agree you with know. you one hundred percent. Just overall being in shape and discipline is going to help with anything, like you know, basketball or baseball. Uh, I agree with you totally, brother. Now. In terms of uh, women's women's self defense, I know you offer some classes, some courses. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, we have a full time uh, women's class here. It's women's only class. It's taught by a woman instructor. Because uh, I understand, especially jujitsu is very invasive as far as space. Um, some martial arts you can train away from each other and do katas and all, and, and that's fine. I don't want to take away anything that anybody does. You know, to me, anything's better than sitting on your sofa. But Jiu-jitsu, the same reason a lot of women are don't want to train jiu-jitsu is exactly why they should, because it is up close and personal. So because of that, because I, I don't want them missing out on the training, we have a women's only class. We have a back room that's private. We have a women instructor. Um, Devin Darzamo has been with me over 10 years now. So she teaches the women's class. Um, so that's, that's an ongoing program we have. And we do uh, probably every other month we do a free one to the open to the public, you know, uh, so they can come in here and it's usually me and Devin teaching it. We try to teach them some basic self-defense things that can save them from immediate attack. You know, they won't be able to go win a jiu-jitsu match or a jiu-jitsu tournament, but they'll be able to defend themselves in that first initial attack, which, which is so important because a lot of people look for easy, easy targets to attack. And if you become not so easy target, they, you know, hopefully they move on. So we do that. I've worked with some um, of the local groups around here that work with, like, abused women and, um, you know, stuff like that. And it's always a pleasure. Some some of the local, uh, we did some stuff with Nichols basketball team, their girls basketball team. So I, I love doing that because I, I love seeing their face when I teach them, like, how to do a choke, and they realize how easy it is. <laughs> and that look in their face is like, I can actually do this. You know, I can act. It's the one thing to ask a woman because women have smaller bone structure than us. You know, that's just that's just biology, and men have really hard heads. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, um, teaching a woman to punch a man may not be the best self defense. You know, but I could teach a woman, a hundred and ten pound woman, to choke out a two hundred twenty pound man. Sure. Because you know, it's going to 
you know, and to see their face light up when they realize it's, it's an empowering feeling when they realize that they can actually do that. You know, they can defend themselves. No doubt about it, man. Now, in our last show, I broke down the uh, UFC fight night this past weekend, and we do have a little bit of MMA stuff here on the show. So what I want to ask you oh, is... Awesome. we got to get together and do it. Yeah, absolutely, man. So so what I want to ask you is these guys at the highest level, you know, we're talking the you know, John Jones and, you know, the, the top upper echelon, Nunez and all those great performers. What allows them to be so successful as opposed to, you know, just the average person on the middle of the card? What allows those great athletes to be so great? I think, uh, and every everybody's going to vary, right? And they're, uh, and they're not only the fighters are going to vary, but people's opinions are going to vary. What I see what makes a special athlete, you know, MMA or NFL, is when you have a combination of talent and work ethic that clashes. So, like, I have some guys here that have the best work ethic in the world, but they lack the athletic abilities. And I have some athlete, some good athletes here that lack some of the other abilities. You know, because they're so athletic, they think they can show up to the gym late and skip a night. Um, when you have those two collide, though, when you have a really talented athlete with an amazing worth ethic put together, that's when I think that breeds a superstar in any, in any sport. And we were actually talking about this last night. You know, John Jones is kind of – you see these guys after they've been champion a while and they, their banking accounts become cushioned. Mm-hmm. They don't have that same drive. to. They don't have – they like that killer instinct, and that's okay. You see that in the NFL um, – Guys retire after they they grow up hungry, right? Your best your best athletes, in my opinion, grew up hungry. They they grew up willing to do anything to have a better life, and I think that's what gives them that work ethic. And then once you got a good cushion, you kind of you're not hungry no more. You know, Michael Strasan talked about that when he retired. He's like, I'm just not hungry. You know, I'm not hungry anymore. I've been successful. It's hard to keep that same same amount of hunger after you've had a lot of success. You know, so I think. What you see in that tupper, that top tier, is a combination of a very hungry, good athlete with amazing worth ethic. And if you look at John Jones, like his pedigree, his family all plays in the NFL. Yeah. So if you look at early UFCs, that was martial artists fighting each other. Now what you see in the UFC is amazing athletes training martial arts. Yeah. And there's a huge difference. I'm a martial artist, but I'm not an amazing athlete. You know? <laughs> So what you, what you see in the UFC now is those guys are guys that maybe um, didn't make it to the NFL or didn't get the spot that they wanted, so they wanted to try something different. Those, those are the guys you see now in the, in the, in the UFC, and it's, it's amazing to watch. So look, man, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Before we let you go, if anybody is listening and is intrigued and they want to get a hold of you guys, how do they do so? Probably the easiest thing is Facebook, man. You can look up me, uh, Derek Bro. I seem assume most of our listeners know how to spell bro. Um, and we're at uh, Blacklist Martial Arts here in Homa. You can look us up on our Facebook. You can message me privately on Facebook. Um, our phone number here. We uh, we do have a phone, but I don't have it in front of me. Uh, so that's probably, Facebook's probably the easiest way to go, man. Sounds like a winner, man. Well, look, thanks so much for the time, and I'm going to take you up on that offer. Next time there's a big UFC show, we're going to have you on, and we're going to break down the card, okay? Yeah, let's do it, Casey. That'd be awesome, man. Thanks for, thanks for the air time, dude. I appreciate it. You got it. Take care. 
That was Derek Bro doing a great job breaking down some of the things that he's doing. He's making an impact to a lot of people in the Homa area, a lot of people in the Lafouche Parish area, Homa Thibodeau area. Um, kudos to him, and we are going to have him on before a big UFC show. We're going to break down the card and get his perspective, get sort of an inside look at who he thinks might win some of the big fights that are going to be coming up. But from MMA and martial arts and jiu-jitsu, we go to baseball, where we have Blake Bergeron on in the next segment. Right after this break, it's the Casey's Corner Podcast on LaFoucheGazette.com. Hey guys, I know it's a commercial break, but it's me again. But I want to tell you guys a big secret. I know how you guys could get the news in Lafouche Parish, the hottest news, all the things that all your friends and all your family members are talking about first before everyone else. How? By getting the Lafouche Gazette app. Go to your app store, get the Lafouche Gazette app today. You'll get push notifications right to your phone anytime anything breaks, anytime anything exciting happens, anytime there's anything going on in Lafouche Parish that people are talking about, we're going to be talking about it and we're going to send it right to your phone. So go to the Lafouche Gazette app, find it on your app store today, download it 100% free, 100% news, 100% local, 100% all the time. Download the Lafouche Gazette app today. Tarpon fans, this is new football coach, B.J. Young. You need to keep it on Casey's Corner Podcast at LaFoucheGazette.com. Go Tarpons! It's the Casey's Corner Podcast here on LaFoucheGazette.com. Joining us now on the calling line, we have Blake Bajeron, former baseball player in the in the Homa area, former Nichols baseball player as well. Blake, how are you today, man? I'm pretty good, and yourself? Doing fine, man, fine. Um, wanted to have you on. You have a decorated career as an athlete and then now in the, in the business field as well, building that career. Um, let's start a little bit with the baseball side of things. When did you you know pick up the bat for the first time? Tell us a little bit about your story as a, as a young baseball player when did you decide hey this is something that i want to chase well like anything else as a uh a young kid in terrebonne Parish, they had a lot of sports that i was kind of involved in you know from soccer to baseball um those are kind of like my two that i stayed heavily in never really got into football or basketball but i didn't really pick up a baseball bat probably until you know eight nine ten years old when the recreational side of things started and I was old enough to, to kind of get in and start playing it other than the T-ball and coach pitch stuff. But I mainly started off playing a lot of soccer. And uh, as I started to grow and get bigger uh, and kind of got out of soccer, that's whenever I got more involved in baseball. And once I got into high school, I just focused on one sport, and that was, that was baseball. So tell me about your time at Terrebonne, man. You were a good ball player, had, you know, all-state recognition, all-district multiple times. Uh, talk about your time as a Terrebonne Tiger, man. So it was fun. We, uh, you know, coming into it, uh, being an organized sport, practice, workout, school, you know, we uh, I, I pretty much lived and breathed baseball during that time, uh, summer ball when I could. 
Uh, and then whenever the season came around, you know, between school and baseball, uh, really didn't have much time off then. And then, you know, when I got to college, it really, it really sunk in that it was pretty much a full-time sport. But enjoyed my time at, at Terrebonne. I got to play behind a, a few good guys and work my way into the lineup as a uh, junior and started, you know, every game as a junior. And then also um, as a senior, I was able to kind of be a team leader and, and be able to play on a pretty high level with a good group of guys. You know, for 95, 97% of guys, high school baseball is the end of it. When did you realize, you know, hey, I'm going to have a career beyond this? When did that kind of sink into you? And then ultimately, second part of that question, how did you pick Nichols? So I got to give a lot of credit to uh, Mr. Joe Tutone. He uh, he kind of reached out in my senior year. And being that my time with, with Terrebonne was going to come to the to an end with Swampland, and I really wasn't good enough to play on his team my junior year. And being that I was locked in at Terrebonne going into my senior year, they wanted us to stay with the Swampland League. But once I was a senior, I had exceeded that time being able to play on Swampland. So Joe reached out to me, and um, I went ahead and, and started playing for him and the Hogs. And Joe was really, really one that pushed for me and got me a chance to walk on at Nichols. And I got to give credit to him because if it wasn't for him and, and my other coaches uh, at Terrebonne, John Gatlin, um, you know, I was able to continue my career going to play for um, Chip Durham and then uh, Seth Thibodeau. Now, most walk-ons, you know, they, they don't usually have a great story to tell because they usually don't last very long. But, man, you, you rose through the ranks, became a starter, became a contributing player at Nichols. Talk about that grind. I know you redshirted your first year and then kind of built your way up. Talk about that grind. So my first year, it was kind of funny because um, being a freshman, I really didn't have, I guess you'd say, the, the, the skill level to play Division One baseball right off the bat. Um, Chip had actually asked if I'd be willing to put on the catching gear and be a bullpen catcher and travel with the team and get a feel for kind of how the Division One baseball level was going to be. That way, my next year, I was ready to go as a, as a freshman or a redshirt freshman. But uh, it was a grind. You know, the guys kind of took me in well. I was, uh, I was actually, as a redshirt freshman, just as big as a lot of the seniors. <laughs> so they didn't mess with me too much. But um, I was able to kind of strap on the, the, the catching gear and just kind of take it for what it was get some reps in during BP and uh, ground balls when I could at a position that I knew I'd be playing at for Nichols the following year and just had a, a really good time with it. And it was, it was a really good learning experience. And I could tell, I'll tell you, a lot of kids, you know, that do get redshirted, they kind of take it as maybe a slap in the face, but I kind of took it and embraced it and realized that, you know, what, I'm going to work my butt off this whole year and then I'll have four years that I can contribute you know, and give everything that I have. Um, so it's kind of a, it's kind of, you get out what you put into it kind of deal. So I'm going to ask you, do you remember your first college base hit? I don't. Okay. Do you I remember don't. your first college home run? Uh, I don't either, man. Come uh, on, man. <laughs> I know it's, it's weird, but uh, I know I got a couple of baseballs at the house that I'd given to my mom to kind of put up on a, on a little mantle, uh, for some first that I had, but, 
I don't remember those two two per se. Yeah, no, that's all good. Um, so what what was the transition like from Coach Durham to Coach Thibodeau? I know that the program was very heavily in flux at that time. There was some you know APR issues and some different things. Um, and Coach Thibodeau has told us, heck, he came on this show a couple episodes ago and said, hey, man, I had to really change the culture. What was that transition like? It was just really getting a lot of guys that had the uh, the hard-nosed uh, baseball mentality. It might not have been the best guys or the, the highly recruited guys, but more or less the ones that were gr- going to grind out and win. You know, and that, that I played with a lot of good guys with Chip, but then the guys that I'd seen and were being recruited by Tim, it was just more or less guys that were gritty, hard-nosed. Uh, they might not have had the most athletic ability uh some you might look at and be like man you really do play division one baseball and um but they just knew the game they knew how to play it they were smart and uh, i was very fortunate to kind of see and play for both coaches and my last year uh which that i played with chip before tip took over you really started to see that implementation and transition and um you know going into seth's career um, I was able to kind of take that and roll and, and run with it. One thing that I like the most about the way that you played was you played hard. You were a big dude, but you played hard. You had 28 stolen bases for your doggone career. You played hard, always gave it 110%. Where did you find that inner motivation to always give it your best? I think it's just it was just the mentality of wanting to win. Um, I knew I needed to contribute some kind of way, so whether it was you know, trying to get a base hit, getting hit by a pitch. But once I got on the bag, I knew that being that I was so, sort of more of a big guy, I was still kind of swift on my feet and trying to catch the team off guard, reading balls in the dirt, and then just, you know, catching them off guard and just blatantly stealing a bag when they're not really paying attention, thinking this guy's going to run or, you know, or he's just going to stay at the bag. Very good. And, you know, you get to your senior season in 2012, um, and then after that senior season, some more opportunities open up for you. Talk us through that ride of, you know, much like when you were in high school, you didn't know if you'd have opportunities at college, and same thing at college, going to the pros. Talk about how that all propped up for you. I think it started back in 2010. Um, it was my, I was coming off of my sophomore year for Nichols, and I went and played summer ball the liberal bjs in kansas and it's kind of like a a deal every year going through college you're expected to play summer ball to where you can continue to grow get better get those extra reps and in 2010 for the bjs uh, i hit a lot of home runs i had a really high batting average a lot of rbis um, with a wooden bat and we actually won the national championship at the uh NBC World Series for summer ball. And when I got back from my start of my senior year or my junior year, I was excited. I knew that uh, I knew that I had some potential. I knew that I can go out there and, and I can play, you know, at a higher level. Um, but it, my my college career never really reflected those numbers like my soft my summer ball career. Um, my summer ball career, I had a really high batting average, a lot of RBIs home runs my college career however it just kind of fell off and i guess it was because we were facing a lot more uh seasoned arms when you're friday night saturday you know sunday guys uh i felt the pressure on 
that level of trying to be and do more than what I needed to actually do. And I was just to go out there and play. But um, it seemed like every year I'd go back and play, you know, for two seasons I played for the Liberal BJs. I had really good summers knowing that after college I would have an opportunity to, to just give it a shot. Uh, it didn't come right off the bat. You know, obviously I went through the draft and I was undrafted. But again, um, got to give credit to, to Coach Joe. He he basically called me and said, hey, man, what you going to do? And I said, well, I, said, I don't know. He said, no. He said, look, they have a, a tryout in Chicago. You're going to it. I said, come on, Coach, I'm not. He's like, no, I'm telling you, you're going to it. Got you a plane ticket. You're going you know, we'll square up later, but this is something that you need to do and pursue. And so uh, I got to give it to him. I went to that showcase, and there were three three sides. There was a, you're not getting picked up, you're on the list, we'll call you, or you're getting signed today and, and packing your bags and going play. So I was on that I'll call you sign, uh, on that call you list, and it, basically I got home, and a week later I was getting a phone call to go play for uh, – the Wichita Wingnuts. I'm sure that that was a thrill. I mean, talk about, you know, the, the process of getting that phone call and realizing, you know, hey, something that you wanted to do your entire life is, is coming true. That's it. Uh, and it was kind of like a uh, going back to a home that I was already uh, at because the NBC World Series is always played at the Wichita Wingnuts home stadium in Wichita. And so when I got there, I was like, oh, man, I've been here before. But it was just it was a different different atmosphere. You had a lot of older season guys. It was a mix of you know guys that had played you know major league ball that have been in the single A, double A, triple A organizations trying to get traded and make their way back. It was just a uh, it was kind of eye opening deal. But I had to meet them in Dallas for my first game, and I never forget. I I drove all night, showed up the next day, and I was playing my first game and. I got my first hit, you know, the first game. So it, it was a pretty cool, cool ordeal. No, that's awesome, man. Now, we've had a couple of uh, baseball players on throughout the, you know, the, the run of the show. And one of the things they tell us, man, is that, you know, yeah, it's it's awesome to be a professional athlete and it's great and it's, a, you know, you're living a dream and all that. But minor league life is pretty tough, isn't it? Talk about, you know, the bus rides and the hotel stays and it, it doesn't sound like a very glamorous life from the outside looking in. No, it's a grind. Casey, I mean, it's one of those deals that you just got to be mentally tough. Um, fortunately for us, we had a nice sleeper bus uh, when I was playing with the wing nuts. It slept like 20 guys. So, I mean, you were able to, to take long road – when you're taking long road trips, you were able to take naps and sleep and kind of rest up in between games. So, I mean, it's a grueling schedule. You might have one week off a night, but that, that night you're traveling to the next location to play. So um, – some of the spreads that you had to eat, you know, they weren't the best. I mean, you were lucky if you had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or you go to some other places, you might have all kind of good stuff, protein shakes, drinks, uh, good meals. But for the most part, you know, you just kind of took it in stride and, and really never questioned it and just realized you were doing it for the love of the game. So travel baseball and, you know, has, has grown so much here in this area. And as a result – High school baseball has grown so much in this area. At the time of the COVID stoppage, I, th- I want to say there were six or seven teams in the home of Terrebonne, you know, Lafouche, Terrebonne area that were in the top ten in their respective classes. 
Um, so that means that there are a lot of players that are playing, a lot of players that are playing at a high level. If you now could have the platform to speak to those younger players who are aspiring to do some of the things that you did, what would you tell them? What advice would you give them? I'd say, I mean, you got to take every opportunity that presents itself because, um, you know, and it's unfortunate for some of the seniors that didn't really get to finish their senior year that I know probably could go off to the next level and play. Uh, it, it's just one of those deals that you got to try to seize every opportunity you can if you want to continue to play using social media, putting tapes out there, reaching out to scouts. Um, you know, they got a lot of guys in the community that are like with the hogs that, that are able to continue to play right now and try to get that little last ditch effort to get into either a walk on role or signed by a college role. I mean, it's just, uh, it's one of those deals that you just have to, you got to put a little extra effort in. Unfortunately, the, the, the COVID had, taking those guys out of rhythm and routine. Um, but I would say just keep on pushing. If it's something you want to do, there's always an opportunity out there that you can take advantage of and go try and, and, and seize the opportunity. Do you still follow Nichols much? Because, man, I was actually talking about this with Coach Thibodeau recently, is that in the last five or six years, man, like the park has changed. It's so much nicer now. They made so many renovations. The facility has changed. Like It feels like there's so much more Nichols pride now than ever before. I was just wondering if you you still kind of followed them from afar. I do. I stay in touch. I go back every year for the uh, the alumni game, and every year I get blown away by how much the facility has changed. I still wish they would bring that left field wall in about 20 feet because I probably had had you know all the home runs that I had but uh you know I won't hold them against it but the lefties now have a good opportunity that could take advantage of that short porch and right uh the turf I can't tell you how many ground balls ate me up so you know those guys now they'll never understand the the Didier hop that we all had to go through but uh you know I think like anything else uh Nichols gets very um it gets shadowed a lot by lsu baseball and you know in the last couple of years you can see that that in-state rivalry rivalry uh, getting more and more uh, exposure and, and and people enjoying to go watch nickel state and lsu play because i mean it's it's everybody's gonna be at each other and, and trying to win and you know it's a good notch in nickel's belt whenever they win knowing they just took down a powerhouse like LSU, but then going to Alex Box and and or the new Alex Box and playing out in the in the crowds that they produce, it's just a it's a fun ordeal. Especially myself being nickel, a Nichols player, maybe not have gotten recruited by LSU. You got a little chip on your shoulder. You wanna you wanna go out there and beat those guys. But uh, I think the facilities are uh, a mirror image of what. Chip and and Tip has done over the years to to try to grow Nickel State baseball and have it to where guys want to come here and play. No doubt. So last baseball question, then we'll talk about your professional career uh, aside from baseball. Is okay. You play a couple of years in the pros, um, and I'm sure it was very difficult to then make the decision. Okay, you know I, I can't do this anymore. Talk to us about that decision of hey, I, I got to go and get a quote unquote real job now. Talk us through that. So it, it all, it, it was a kind of eye-open experience when I first got and signed with Wichita. I played for about a month. And then like anything else, there was some other guy who probably had a little bit better stock than me that they brought on the team and they pretty much released me. 
but they told me, hey, look, you know, we're going to give you a call to come back in spring training, work out, and try to make the team again. I went back out for spring training, went through the whole deal, felt like I had a good opportunity, gave them all, and then I wound up getting released, but then picked up right after by the Frontier Grays and the American Association. And I got home, turned around, packed a bag, and drove up to Ohio and met the team. And I played a full season, 100-plus games with them. And during that season, it was kind of around the time that, you know, right before I left, I proposed to my wife. And basically, I told her, I said, look, it's going to come down to at the end of the season, if I sign a professional contract, then I want to keep going. But if I'm only good enough to sign another affiliated contract, then I'm, I'm going to hang it up. And that's what it kind of came down to. I had a couple of offers to go play and make a little bit more money for some other teams. But I just knew that I didn't want to be 30, 31 years old trying to start my career, uh, my professional working career. I'd rather get in it, you know, at a young mid-20s. And I knew I couldn't provide and uh, support a family on the the, ch- the paychecks that I was uh, making. So no, I totally it was understand just, that. It was just one of those deals. I just came to the reality and, and realized, hey, it's either this or nothing. I understand that completely. And, and and what are you doing now, man? Let let the listeners know what you're up to these days, man. So I've been with uh, Pipeline Construction and Maintenance, PCM, for the last four and a half years. Uh, November will be five. I started out with them as a safety coordinator uh, for my previous job with K&B Industries. I was their safety coordinator. And for the last two and a half years, I've been doing business development for PCM. So I pretty much cover anywhere between Houston, Texas to Birmingham, Alabama and all in between or wherever they have work opportunities that I can go try and chase to, to, to create op- working opportunities for our crews. You know, I'm, I'm always fascinated because we have so many different people on and, and you know, so many different people that I visit with throughout the day, you know, just at various places and they're always telling me how much their job has changed or whatever during the last couple of months. How's your job changed in the last couple of months, man? Uh, so for about two months, um, I really couldn't be on the road. Uh, customers weren't able to really interact with vendors. So whether how I used to do my, or how I do my job, it's a lot of face to face visits, um, trying to, to find the person, let them know who we are, what we do and, and look for that opportunity that we can go and do some work for them. Uh, whether it's a bid or, or a time and material type job, but just construction services in general. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on the road. I don't really have an opportunity to sit behind a desk because if I don't go out there and chase the work, the work's not going to come to me. So for the, for the shutdown, I had to do a lot of email and phone call and texting. Uh, but a lot of it was, Hey man, you know, everything's kind of on hold right now. We're waiting to see what this virus is going to do. Wait till the state opens back up. So it was a lot of sit around and wait, but I, I got an opportunity to catch up with a lot of family time. I got two little boys, uh, five and three, and, you know, just pretty much get to, get to spend all day with them if I wasn't on my phone or on my computer. Very good. Last question, then we'll let you go. Um, we, we've been very hard on Major League Baseball on this show in the last couple of weeks because, you know, they, they have a plan in place to get back out on the field, and, you know, there's just a financial gap and a financial divide. Have you been following that? Whose side are you on there, man? It feels like we need some baseball, but they're just not ready to give it to us just yet. I think it's like anything else. They're going to look at the health of the players and jumping into a season. I know like the NBA is trying to get back some kind of 
uh, schedule and game plan going forward. But uh, the thing about Major League Baseball is these guys should have been conditioning and, and starting their workouts in March and April. And when everything kind of got shut down, they lost those two months to prepare and plan. So for them to throw out, whether it's a 100-game season or 80-whatever, um, it's just going to have to be worked out for the facilities. I think they're looking at it on all avenues, for the facilities, to the players' health, to the fans' health. And uh, I'd like to see them come out with something, but because uh, I don't think you can completely do away with baseball this year. It would just be uh, – yeah, I don't think it would be good. But I'm hoping they have a plan in place and, and they can come up with something to put out there for, for everybody, especially the players. I agree with you 100%. Well, Blake, thanks so much for the time, man. It's been a pleasure. We'll do this again soon, okay? Thank you, Casey. That was Blake Bergeron doing a good job. I looked you know, so much forward to that interview, and it, it, it panned out. It was as good as I thought it would be. Let's go ahead and catch a quick commercial break. There is a tropical storm in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, my God. I hear all of you guys panicked out from here. We've got Phase 2 to talk about. We've got Cristobal to talk about. Relax. Exhale. It's going to be okay. Pour a glass of your favorite beverage. And by the time you are done doing that, the commercial break will be over, and we'll talk about why everything's going to be okay right after this break. It's the Casey's Corner Podcast on LaFoucheGazette.com. What's up, guys? It's me again. I know you're getting tired of hearing me during the commercials, but I have another message, another very important thing I'd like to tell you. I'm doing this podcast on my own time, and it's 100% for you guys, our listeners, our readers, and everybody in LaFouche Parish who loves sports and who loves news as much as I do. So I cannot stress to you enough If there's a guest that you want to hear, please let me know. I'll try to get them on. If there's a question that you have, please find me on social media. At Casey underscore Jisclair at Twitter. JisclairCasey at gmail.com. Find a way to get a hold of me. I want this to be an interactive show, but I want you guys to participate, and I want you guys to be part of the team. So please, if you have someone that you'd like for us to book, let us know so we can reach out to them. If you have a question, please let me know. I'm available 24-7. Don't take any days off. Please make sure that if you got something that you'd like for us to cover, that you let us know so that we could do the best for our awesome listeners. Calling guest Derek Crow. We want to thank our other calling guest Blake Bergeron. Uh, two great interviews. You can find those on LaFoucheGazette.com. Uh, anytime you can listen to this episode at any time. Go find us on iTunes. You can listen at any time. Um, it's the Cases Corner podcast here on LaFoucheGazette.com. We're going to give now a short uh, COVID update. Then we'll talk about Tropical Storm Cristobal. And uh, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, don't have any questions or anything COVID. Well, we do have a, a couple of COVID questions that we'll take. I apologize. I forgot about a couple of the ones that I got earlier today. But it's not an expansive, big time, you know, seven, eight question COVID update. It's just a couple of questions that we'll take and then we'll wrap up. Uh, on Monday, Governor John Bell Edwards announced that we are going to enter phase two of the reopening plan. And I've been asked many times what that means. Um, first off, to get to phase two, we had to see... Um, 
20 plus days or actually by the federal government it says 14 days but louisiana decided to do three weeks of phase one as opposed to two so we had to see 20 days of continued progress in slowing down our cases and also slowing down the rate of our hospitalizations there are some areas that are going faster than others in terms of making that progress but by and large the entire state is making progress um, which has allowed us to make that jump so in Louisiana, phase two will mean that everything that is open right now will be able to stay open and everything that was previously open had to occupy at 25% capacity. That capacity is now going to grow to 50%. So that includes churches, solo and non-contact sports will be able to be played at 50% capacity at you know venues and parks, playgrounds and other outdoor play centers barbers and salons, museums, zoos, aquariums, gyms and fitness centers, malls, restaurants, coffee shops, cafes, bars and breweries that have a, a Louisiana Department of Health food permit, theaters, casinos and video poker establishments, racetracks. Okay, those will now all be able to be opened at 50% capacity. The following businesses will be able to reopen but will have specific guidelines that will be issued by the state fire marshal's offices. Bars and breweries without food permits can open at 25% occupancy. Day spas, tattoo shops, massage parlors, and um, you know all that type of line of work, they could reopen at 50% capacity. Public swimming pools could reopen. Bowling alleys and skating rinks at 50% capacity. Event centers, 50% capacity. Non-essential travel can resume as well in the state. Um, Governor Edwards has made clear, hey, there's still some risk that is involved in all of this. If you don't feel safe, stay home. If you're, you know, an elderly person, high risk person, uh, you know, in your, your 50s and 60s and you got, you know, diabetes and you're overweight, uh, go out only when you need to. Go to the grocery store, whatever it may be, you know, go out only when you need to. Um, but this is what the rest of the state is going to be doing going forward. This is what phase two entails. Phase two is also going to allow schools to reopen uh, while also keeping visitation towards hospitals and nursing homes closed. So the schools will be able to reopen on June the 8th for the beginning of the athletic seasons. Teams will be able to get into the weight room. And we're going to have you know plenty of coaches on throughout the next couple of weeks um, to talk about how that's going, talk about the process of getting that reopened, see how everything's going, you know, is everybody staying safe, and all of that good stuff. So we'll be keeping an eye on that um, as the state is moving into Phase 2. That begins on Friday. We're still going to be in Phase 1 until then, but on Friday we make that leap forward. Now, Louisiana numbers. Uh, let me pull that up now for you. We have uh, 41,133 total COVID cases. Reminder, that's not the active number because we have 31,728 who have recovered, 2,759 who have died. Um, 617 hospitalized cases of COVID in the state. Um, just warms your heart, man. I mean, it, it, it does. And I know that you know, people say, well, why do you like to talk about the hospitalizations number so much when the cases are continuing to grow? The only reason why we ever shut down was to save room in the hospitals, man. And the fact that we're able to continue to decrease that number, decrease that number significantly, even as we're reopening, even as we're getting new cases, it's it's wonderful. I mean, that number was 2,156, I think, at the time, at the peak of this. It's now 617. There's 617 patients who were you know, fighting in hospitals in t around the entire state. That's tremendous progress. 
86 patients are currently on ventilators in the state. That number has continued to stay steady, if not trending downward as well. Now, one thing that I have been getting questioned about is Lafouche Parish, uh, because we have seen a small increase in Lafouche in the last couple of days, namely yesterday when we added 40 new cases and it freaked out a lot of people. It freaked out me. As soon as I saw the number, I called Archie Chasson, parish president, said, Archie, what's going on, bro? Uh, you know, we had 40 new cases and he explained that it was due to a backlog of tests from the Raceland lab, public lab that was now closed down, uh, Raceland testing site rather, that was now closed down. And he said that that would not be an issue in the future. <clears throat> and today we reported 11 new cases, which is still slightly higher than what we'd been. We had kind of gotten into that five or six new case a day range, and that's kind of grown a little bit. Um, but more interaction is going to mean more cases. That's just the basic math of it. The most important thing is keeping that number of hospitalized patients down. Uh, we've seen several local businesses close temporarily. Gal Galliana Food Store closed temporarily. They have now reopened. Mommy Joe's has closed temporarily. They are approaching reopening. Sheremy's has closed temporarily. They have not yet reopened. A Bears Quick Stop, you know, a little gas station next to the Galliana Bridge. They closed. They're not yet reopened, all because employees have tested positive for COVID-19. Um, kudos to them for doing the right things, um, taking the right precautions, and doing right, not necessarily just by your employees, but by the public as, as a whole. Um, I think that it shows that we have a lot of business owners here who care, a lot of business owners here who are committed to doing the right things. And I applaud all of those businesses that have, the, that have closed, um, and I wish them all successful reopenings. Kudos to you all for being honest and forthright. And um, we know that we're going to get this thing out of the water here, and uh, we're going to be kicking chicken in the next couple of weeks. In Lafouche, we have 878 total COVID cases. We have 71, 72, excuse me, total patients who have died from the coronavirus. Um, that number has remained. The death total has remained fairly steady. It was once going up by oh, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten people a week. That number has kind of really keeled over and leveled off. And one of the reasons why it's done that is because as we've talked about throughout these last shows is there's just not a whole lot of patients on ventilators anymore ventilator use is the is a number that kind of tells you how many of these patients are the most critically severe uh you could be hospitalized with this and just be kind of being looked at as a precaution because you're high risk or whatever it may be when you get put on the ventilator man that's when things really get serious so just know that there's 86 people in the entire state who are on the ventilators that tells you that those are 86 people who are very critical, very critically ill. Um, but when that number was once 571, you know, that's when we were seeing the 70, 80, 90 people a day dying. Now those numbers are, are leveling off quite a bit. And it's simply a, a math game is there's far fewer critically ill people in the state. And the big thing, you know, well, well, Casey, if we're getting more people who are hospitalized or more, excuse me, more people who are being positively diagnosed in Lafouche, shouldn't that mean that our hospital numbers are going to go up? Fortunately, no, it's not. Even though we've added these new cases, we've not seen an increase in our hospitalizations. Um, and that shows that, you know, hey, maybe we're treating this a little earlier. Maybe we're, you know, getting, you know, better handle on how to combat these people once they come in with the COVID symptoms and once they test positive. Maybe the tests are coming back a little bit sooner. So we're getting a better handle on this earlier and far fewer people are going to get critically ill, perhaps. I'm, I'm guessing, but you know, you look at the, the number of cases we've added and you looked at the hospitalization numbers, they're not going up. Um, 11 ventilators are in use, 109 are available. That number's been steady. For the last week or so, that number's been steady. 
ICU beds, not changing. 62 in use, 67 available. That's not changing. And in fact, in the last, since the last update, it's gotten better. There are more beds that are available now than what they were the last time we did a show. Total hospital beds available, 366, 417 are in use. Number's not changing. It's staying steady. Um, so it just goes to show that we're adding more and more cases, but fewer people are getting severely ill. Fewer people are getting you know, critically ill. And uh, we're making progress and we're, you know, we're moving forward and doing the things that we need to do to enable ourselves to enhance our reopening efforts. So before we take some of your questions, I want to touch briefly on something that uh, I've wanted to do my entire life, and that's be a, a meteorologist. So I'm going to give you a quick tropical update, then we'll get to your questions. Tropical storm Cristobal uh, is turning out in the Gulf of Mexico um, it is actually over land right now. It's located at 18.4 degrees north, 91.9 degrees west. Maximum sustained winds at 50 miles per hour. Crystal balls on land in Mexico, moving south southeast at 3 miles per hour. Um, the track currently takes this thing uh, to Louisiana. It takes it, you know, the center line track takes it to around the Lafayette area uh, overnight Sunday and on Monday as a high end tropical storm. So. Looking at some of the computer modeling today, and again, my God, please, by all means, watch Fox 8. Um, watch your local weather you know, channels and different things of the sort because God knows I'm not a weatherman. I'm just going by the things that I'm seeing. And some of the things that I'm seeing today is that some of the models have kind of shifted more westward, more towards the Texas-Louisiana border because, look, they're forecasting this thing's going to be on land, move south, and make a northward trek back into the Gulf, move due north for three, four days, and make a you know kind of a northwesterly turn into the coast. And um, the timing of that curve is going to be important because you know if it happens while the storm is very much over water, this thing could hit Texas. If it happens when this thing's closer to land, we could see a direct landfall over this area. Um, so the timing of that all and then another thing is how long is it going to stay over Mexico? Can it survive once it gets back into the Gulf? I don't know. That's another thing that you know, we're gonna have to see it could just you know fizzle out entirely um, So the the model runs from today and I'm re recording this literally at 315 on Wednesday um, have it a little more trending towards a um, that starting that Northwest turn while still over water and some of the models are picking up now, maybe a Lake Charles landfall, maybe, you know, a, a an extreme East Texas landfall, maybe landfall near the Louisiana, Texas line. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but we definitely got to keep our eyes open. This thing is predicted to be a sloppy storm. Even at landfall, it's going to grow it, in terms of, you know, it's it not necessarily its strength, but whenever these things break up, they balloon out outward as they get disorganized. You know, the, the big massive storms kind of have that contained cluster. When they're weak and they're, they're uh, not well put together, they expand outward. The storms get far away from the center. So even if this thing hits Lake Charles and we're going to be on the wet side of the storm, we could see a ton, a ton of rain. So, you know, if you got a, some sticks in your ditches, you know, go and clog them. If you got some branches on the street, you know, burn them today, tomorrow, whatever it may be. You don't want to have anything laying around if you got any um plants that need to be put up or picked up do that now you don't want to be waiting on saturday morning doing this whenever the winds are starting to pick up we're in a flood watch until next tuesday because regardless of where this thing goes they're predicting that there's going to be a ton of um rain uh, 10 plus inches of rain over the next week or forecast for southeast louisiana 
So we're going to keep an eye on that. Um, just, you know, if you got to go into the grocery store and get some bottled water and some potted meat and everything, stock up now, man. Be safe, you know, wear your mask, do whatever you got to do, but stock up now. You don't want to be waiting until the last minute, especially during, you know, coronavirus time and pandemic time where the stores are already kind of a madhouse anyway. But we're going to keep you updated. LaFougeGazette.com. I love doing weather reporting. If we've got to, you know, continue to track this thing and it becomes a problem for southeast Louisiana, we're going to be on top of it. We've already spoken to Archie Shastow, parish president. He's detailed some of the plans that Lafouche has over the next couple of days. They're on top of the, you know, the the curve, so to speak. We're going to be following them from start to finish, and we're going to get this thing out of the door, and we're going to be okay. This is not expected to be a major storm. Uh, this maybe just be a, a rainmaker, and you know, kind of a nuisance. It may wash out our weekend, but I think we're going to get through this okay. So we're going to take some of your questions, and then we're going to wrap up. And uh, that'll be it. It was a successful show. And then, you know, we'll be back on the weekend with a little bit more. So question one today comes from a reader who wants to know, do you have any concern about Lafouche Parish's new COVID cases? Uh, I touched on that a minute ago. Um, yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, anytime you see, you know, cases that were once seven or eight a day, uh, jump to 40 a day. I mean, it, it alarms you. It caught my eye. Like I said, I called, you know, Parish President Chasson right away when I saw it. Um but the, the key thing is, and I, you know, I keep saying this, and it's hard even for me, uh, even though I, I'm the one giving you the warning to, to do this, it's hard to, to practice what you preach sometimes. The key thing to pay attention to is hospitalizations and ventilator use, not only in the state, but in Region 3. And as long as those things are trending in the right direction, the situation is continuing to get better, no matter how many total cases we have, because... Um, the whole reason why we shut down, the whole reason why we sheltered in place, the whole reason why we did all the things that we did was not because we were concerned about having zero sick people. It was because we were concerned about running out of room in our hospitals. And the fact that we continue to have more and more and more room in our hospitals tells us that this is becoming a problem that is lessening in extent and in degree. And we're buying ourselves more and more time for there to be a vaccination. I saw information today from Dr. Fauci that said there's going to be a couple hundred million doses of the vaccine available in America by the end of the year. Uh, so, you know, you figure um, a lot of you folks are conspiracy theorists and won't take the vaccine. Uh, heck, from what I've learned, almost half of you folks are conspiracy theorists who won't take the vaccine. So you do the math, a couple hundred million Americans that would mean that almost everybody who wants one will be able to get one by the end of the year. And then we should be able to finally, fully move towards getting this thing out of the way, completely out of the way, completely out of our hair and moving forward into the future with normal life again. Number two, it's hurricane season. There's already a storm in the Gulf. How should we be evacuating during a pandemic? Um, I wish I had the answer, man. Uh, I could tell you this, that Cristobal will not be the storm you're going to have to worry about this for. Um, Cristobal is not going to be the one that we're going to have to leave town and, you know, go to Houston or go to um, Florida or whatever it may be. But future storms in this season may be those storms. And I, that was one of the things that Parish President Shaston talked about was how do we bus people? How do we, you know, open up public shelters and, and make sure that people are staying safe? He doesn't know the answers to that yet, so I don't know the answers, obviously, because the people who are making those decisions don't even know yet. So uh, the only thing I can tell you, man, is, and I'll add another element to it, is how do we 
you know, evacuate to places that, you know, some of the cities and hotel areas may be, you know, dealing with rioting and, and different things of that sort. You know, I can't say right now that I would feel safe going to Houston um, with some of the things I've seen going on in Texas, uh, you know, or whatever it may be. So it's it's an interesting time. And the only thing I could tell you that can maybe give you some comfort or some reassurance is, uh, just pray about it, man. Uh, just hope that that's a bridge that we've got across um, next hurricane season or 10 hurricane seasons from now and not this one um, because it's not a great time to be doing those things. Um, and certainly we hope that, that we're spared. Uh, we certainly hope that we're spared. Number three, why can't there be live music in phase two of the reopening plan? It's very simple. Uh, and I, I actually talked about this on Facebook. Some people disagreed, but to the people who disagree, I mean, you're, you're going against science. Uh, your conspiracy theories are fine, but you're going against science. And that's usually not a wise thing to do. Um, the reason why you can't sing is because the actual, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm physically talking to you right now. I'm talking into a computer. And if you were in the room with me, you'd be able to hear me. Uh, but I'm not, you know, exerting a whole lot of energy. Whereas if I physically sung, I'd be expressing and, and pushing forward more vapors into the air at a farther difference or farther distance. So if I'm talking to some, I'm, I'm in a room right now and there's a door that's about 10 feet away from me. If I'm talking at this voice, my vapors are not going to reach the person who'd be standing at that door. Whereas if I'm singing a rock song, you know, I may be, you know, a spitting more when I speak to pushing that forward with more force, which means it'll get farther across the room. And which also means that it's far more likely to spread. Um, there were studies done, and this is the same reason why you can't have a church choir. Uh, there were studies done with church choirs that show that one member of the choir sung sick and infected almost everybody in the choir for the same reason, because they were pushing their vapors forward at farther distances. More people were inhaling them than normal conversation, even at farther distances, even when they were separated. So that's the reason why you can't sing is because talking is one thing that doesn't require much energy, but physically pushing the notes out with force and in the form of song spreads those vapors around 10 times more than when you're just talking makes it so incredibly highly likely that if you're singing while sick while asymptomatic whatever it may be you can infect an entire room and obviously that's uh not conducive towards limiting the spread of this thing number four when will phase three start and what comes with that um good question it would come in mid-june i don't know the exact date so i'll pull it up for you i have it in a story somewhere uh, while I pull that up, I'm going to talk to you about what phase three would entail. It's basically the same things that we're doing now, um, except um, continuing to grow in the capacity. 50% would become 75% and, and growing further and further and further. And then also phase three would come with the, the start of contact sports. That's whenever we'd be able to see football be played again. That's whenever we'd be able to see um, you know basketball be able to be played again. Uh, phase two will end on June the 26th, by the way. So you figured late June, we could get into phase three. And uh, that would put us on schedule to potentially open up high school football season on time. And some of the other things that we we're planning to see uh, can maybe open up on time. That's if we don't have any setbacks. That's a big if, a uh, big gamble. But looking at some of the data, I think that we're going to be okay. So I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I want to thank our two call-in guests. We had wonderful call-in guests today. Uh, I thank them so much for their time, Derek Bro and Blake Bergeron.
future shows we're going to continue to line up guests if there's anybody that you want to hear um tell us tell us and and you know i'll do my best to line them up can't promise you know that we'll be able to book them but we'll try our best we'll reach out we'll make the contact necessary to to get a hold of them uh find us on itunes i can't emphasize that enough casey's corner on itunes find us on facebook we're going to be doing some interactive things getting involved with you guys there um stay safe socially distance hug your loved ones uh do the things that we've been continuing to do since we started this show, episode one, can, compared to now, episode 11, the progress that we've made as a state is incredible. And if we continue to do the things that we're being told are safe and that are um, helpful to limiting the spread of this virus, we're going to fight this thing off. We're going to get back to normal life. We're going to continue to enhance what phase we're in and all that good stuff. So thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to everybody for cooperating and doing the things they're supposed to do. Keep an eye on the weather. Keep an eye on LaFoucheGazette.com. We're going to tell you where Cristobal is going. We're based on the guidance that are told to us by meteorologists. And if it comes time that, you know, we're under tropical storm watch or warning or whatever, you're going to know from us first. Uh, we're going to tell, you know, about sandbag locations and some of the other things that may be coming in the coming days. We'll keep you updated on all that. And uh, we look forward to, knock on wood, I don't know if you heard me knock, uh, having another episode Saturday so that we could uh, you know, get another one in before potentially having to deal with a tropical storm. So we're going to sign off here. You guys have a wonderful Wednesday. Stay dry, stay, stay safe, all that good stuff, and keep it on LaFoucheGazette.com. Goodbye, everybody. God bless. Well, I met this lady, and I told her quite a story. said I love her forevermore. But the trouble is I tell the same old story to every girl that walks through the door.